I don't know what a science doctor is, Luke, <laughs> but I really want to be one when I grow up. So let's talk to you and I about making that a degree, right? Uh, I know it's cold, but was anybody, did you just like have like a soulish deep breath when you saw the sun come out for like five minutes today? It was like, okay, yep, you are real, Jesus. Thank you so much. That rain, man, it's just, it's bad for the bones, bad for the soul. So glad that now it's just 38 degrees. So the Iowa that I'm used to, finally back. So glad. If you're a... Not sure where we're at in our series. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're actually going to be going through chapter 2. So you can turn to chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I just want to celebrate. Sometimes uh, in parenting, you have little moments where you're like, I am doing this right. And sometimes they're very spiritual moments, and other times they're just like, I'm going to be a cool dad moment. I had one of those today. A lot of times after the girls wake up from naps, like if my wife's out running an errand, I usually just like, turn music up really loud and we dance around the living room and just get psyched to have an after nap snack. And I was looking for the song that I wanted to play and I was on my Spotify and audibly I went like, oh yeah. And when I said that, I looked up because my three-year-old looked at me and said, is it a banger, dad? (laughs) And I was like, yes, it is, Finley Joe. It's a banger. So I just felt so unnecessarily proud of myself (laughs) after that moment. Thought I'd share it with you guys. So yeah, pretty great. Just wanted to share it. I'm just, I'm pretty cool, you know? I'm just kidding, she's the cool one. So 1 Corinthians chapter two. We probably gotta catch up, figure out where have we been and now where are we headed? So underneath everything that Paul is saying, sometimes one of the bummers about what we've done to the Bible and breaking it up into chapters and verses, well, that's a really good thing and it helps us have trains of thought and understand what's happening is we actually kind of miss like the broader picture because you have to remember when they got the letter, it didn't say 1 Corinthians on the top and it didn't have page breaks and verse numbers. It was like one continuous letter. So all of these different flows of thought weren't stopped and started again, kind of the way we do. And there's nothing wrong with how we do that, but we always have to remember to zoom out and and see what is the the bigger picture? What is the greater story that's happening in the letter? And right now, Paul is kind of attacking something that he started a few weeks ago. See, under all of the things that Paul has said so far in this letter, and he'll say again tonight, all of it has to do with redefining all kinds of misconceptions or misunderstandings that the Corinthians had about the Christian life. Because here's the problem. The Corinthians were allowing culture to influence their faith instead of allowing their faith to influence their culture. They were allowing culture to influence faith instead of allowing their faith to influence their culture. When Stephen kind of opened up that passage to us talking about all these divisions that were in the church, people saying, well, I follow Apollo, so I follow Peter, I follow Paul, I follow Jesus. See, what they were actually doing is something that the Greek culture would do. They would find some uh, guy who loved philosophy or some really great speaker, and they would become his disciple. They would begin to follow him around and say, well, I follow this guy. And that actually began to create divisions because that's not how Christianity works. We just follow Jesus. See, they were falling into that misconception. They were allowing culture to define faith instead of the other way around. And then Reed beautifully helped us see that 
They were uh, not to boast in all of their accomplishments or their relevance or their birth line. They were supposed to boast in the fact that although they weren't worth it, Jesus said they were anyways. Because back then you were defined by your class, you were defined by your family line, you were defined by your profession. So much of who you were was in where you came from or how much money you had. Not unlike the culture we had now, but again, Paul was trying to say, look, that's not how the gospel works. The gospel says, I'm actually gonna choose the people that our culture would never expect to be a part of my kingdom. Paul is constantly trying to flip things back around for them, and tonight is no exception. In chapter two, he kind of has two points he wants to make. One point is in the first five verses, we'll cover that, and then the second point is in the rest of them, and we'll cover that each separately. And kind of the big thought behind that is, there were a lot of these people in the, the Corinthian church who thought that they had acquired some sort of like special knowledge or wisdom or that they had understood some sort of Christian mystery that no one else could understand. They thought that they had like attained like a super Christian or like I'm on a different level with Jesus than you kind of idea. They just totally blew up uh, this whole humility that you're supposed to have in the faith and decided to elevate themselves. It was just spiritual pride. And Paul's gonna attack that. And we're gonna attack that with him starting in verse one, going to verse five. I'm gonna read it and then we'll unpack it together. It says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Okay, we need to define some things. First, what is he talking about when he says he was announcing the mystery of God, right? It's not like he was telling everybody to come play a live game of Clue, okay? He was announcing the gospel, the thing that had been hidden for so long, this mystery, this thing that no one could figure out through the Old Testament was actually just Jesus Christ. God in flesh came to die for us. The life death and resurrection of Jesus was the mystery of God. So when he says, I was proclaiming to you the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the mystery of God. And what we need to focus on is how he describes the way that he proclaimed it. The way that he said it is absolutely critical to how we understand uh, why he even put these details in there. What he says is, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom, and then a few verses down in verse four, he says, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom. Okay, what he's not saying is I came to you and acted as stupid as I possibly could, as simple and, and stupid as I possibly could. What he's actually saying is I came to you unlike the world around you gains followers. Because again, back then you would follow someone, listen to someone, or believe what they had to say because of how well they argued, how intelligent they seemed, or how persuasive or charming they were when they talked to you. And Paul did not want people coming to faith because Paul was a persuasive speaker or had all these really airtight and wise arguments. Because the Greeks valued super intellectual arguments, really creative speaking, and then would praise the messenger more than the message. 
That was the problem. They were praising the messenger more than the message. That's what was happening in verses uh, 10 through 17 in chapter 1. And the funny thing is, all of those men, Apollos, Peter, Paul, even Jesus, they all preached the same message. But the Corinthian church had just bypassed the message to follow the person or the messenger. And he's trying to say here, like, that is not what the Christian life is about. That is not how I want you to have faith in the gospel that I'm preaching to you. Because what he actually wanted and the reason he came not trying to make himself look good was because he wanted to be a demonstration of the Spirit's power. That's what he says. He wanted their faith to be in a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So you have to ask, like, how does the Spirit demonstrate power? By bringing dead people to life. The Spirit demonstrates its power by bringing dead people to life. No creative argument or really creative way to say something is actually what saves anyone. Only the power of the Holy Spirit is needed to bring dead people to life. Paul didn't want the church believing that what he had to, what he had to say because of the way he said it or the way he explained it. Because here's the problem. If their faith wasn't in the message alone, then the minute Paul left town and a new guy showed up, if they didn't like him, their faith was probably done and they would leave too. See that if, if their faith was not just in the truth of the gospel alone, but was also attached to the way that Paul said it or explained it, well, then the minute Paul was gone, they would probably be gone as well. And I actually get really nervous for you and me when I read that. I get really nervous for the American church because I think many in American evangelical Christianity have a faith that can only exist because of the preferences they have for the way that they go to church. I believe that is absolutely true. And I'm telling you right now, great teachers and a great band can't do what only God is capable of doing. Now, there's nothing wrong. Like when they did that harmony with just vocalists a second ago, I went up into the third heaven. Hallelujah, Jesus, right? Oh my gosh, I worshiped. There is nothing wrong with it unless it is also the reason you have faith. If you have to have those things to follow Jesus, then you probably don't actually have faith in Jesus. That's the problem. He does not need our American way of church to save people. You know, right now there are people in China who are not worried about how good the worship is. They're just glad they can whisper a few words to Jesus because if they get caught, they're dead. There are people in India who sneak out into alleys to bang on a plastic bucket and say a few things to Jesus, hoping no one comes around the corner and beats them all up for believing in him. Their faith is not in the music or how great it is. Their faith is not in how educated or well-spoken the preacher is. It's in Jesus alone. And in many ways, that will be our greatest problem as we continue to follow Jesus. And it's the, the condemning question or the convicting question, I mean, that we have to ask because I think we complain sometimes about the teaching if it wasn't compelling or if it was just okay. We complain if the worship team doesn't play the song we want or if we don't get goosebumps afterwards. I'm telling you, if you really need good teaching or great music to worship Jesus, you need to reconsider where your faith actually lies. If you need those things to follow Jesus, I don't think you actually realize that you only need Jesus. If you can only follow Jesus in a Salt Network church, 
then I would be bold enough to say, you might not actually have faith in Jesus. It might just be in Salt Company. And as great as Salt Company is, it is not Jesus. And you do not need it to believe the gospel or follow him. This is what your faith in Jesus should be based on. God became a man in weakness, lived a life in perfection, broke the power of sin on the cross and offers anyone who comes to him new life through his resurrection from the dead. That is what your faith alone should be in. If the music is great, awesome. If the guy who teaches you the Bible every week is pretty good, praise God. But it should not be the place or the only reason you have faith. If anything else makes or breaks your faith, you need to reconsider where your faith actually rests. And on the other side of what Paul is saying in these first few verses, pause too. What that actually is going after is this consumer culture we have, right? We think everything exists to make us happy or make us feel good, right? If you go to a church saying, what can I get out of it? You're already in trouble. You should walk into a church and say, how can I worship Jesus here? What can I do for your local body in this place, Jesus? So Paul's even just pushing against our consumer culture in this moment. So now on the other side, he kind of gives this encouragement to our own attempts at sharing the gospel, right? Because that's kind of a, a scary thing to like tell somebody about Jesus. If you're like me, it's like the one thing that seems to like give me the most nerve-wracking, pit-sweat like moments. Like more than standing up here and teaching to you guys is like sitting across from someone and telling them about Jesus. And I'm actually really encouraged when I read this because Paul, the Apostle Paul, like I don't even think Billy Graham come, can hold a candle to the, the Apostle Paul. He says in verse 3 that he came to them in weakness in fear, and in much trembling. Like the dude who wrote most of our New Testament says that he came to this church in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And if the Apostle Paul came to these people that way, then we should feel encouraged that our ability to share the gospel does not have to come from some great personal confidence within us. We don't have to appear like we have all the answers. We don't have to seem like we're really sure of what we're saying. We just have to say it. And that also means that anyone that you meet, you don't have to think, oh, if they would just come to Salt Company, they would hear the gospel, and I bet they'd follow Jesus. No, what they actually just need is you. They just need you to open your mouth and begin to tell them. It's great to bring them here and have them be a part of the family, but it's not what God's waiting for to save them. He actually wants to use you to open your mouth and then he'll do the rest. You can stumble over your words. You can struggle to have all the answers because the power to save is in the message, not in the messenger. The power to save, what this shows is it's not in the person speaking, but in what he is saying, he or she is saying. The power is in the message, not in the messenger. And I think there's this tiny little lie behind the anxiety we feel about sharing the gospel. And I think we live it out. And here's what I think the lie is. I think we believe this lie that sharing the gospel is more about us and how we will be perceived than how they'll actually respond. 
right? I think we're actually more afraid that they'll reject us than how we think about how they'll reject the gospel. Our fear is, oh, will they not like me or talk to me? It's not, oh, will they believe this? Because if not, their life's going to continue to be miserable. But the power of the gospel is not in the messenger, it's in the message. You and I are not the deciding factor in their believing the truth. The message has the power, we just need to speak it. If what's holding you back from sharing the gospel is you're just afraid of what they'll think of you, then you're just like the Corinthians. You're valuing the wrong things. You're letting culture influence faith instead of faith influencing culture. And what this should actually do is create in us a, a greater hunger and a humility because we have no power in what we say, but he uses us anyways. Do you realize that? Like that is incredible. You can go across the world tomorrow, meet someone who you barely understand, and God could use that moment if you were just willing to speak it to change their eternity. He absolutely can do that because it's not about you, it's about his truth. The power is not in us, it's in his story, it's in the gospel. Remember, he's going after this spiritual pride and this arrogance. It was maybe the primary issue that was poisoning the church and causing all of the problems because they were so entrenched in the culture of Corinth and they were assessing themselves and looking at themselves by the standards of the city instead of by the standards and wisdom of their God. That's where they were running into the problems, and I think that's where we run into the problems as well, is we continue to let culture inform how we live our faith, when what we should actually be doing is letting our faith absolutely drive how we exist and how we change our culture. That's what Paul is trying to do, and it's what he intends to do now in the next section. So we're moving on to this next kind of massive chunk of Scripture, and there's a little caveat that I want you to, to have in your mind to understand it. So both the Jewish culture and the Greek culture, they valued like anyone who thought that they had like a secret understanding, right? Like if you could say like, hey, I know something you don't know. I have this like new way to follow Jesus. You like put on whale sounds and you like hum really loud and then this new book of the Bible pops up in front of you. I just made that up on the spot. That'd be really weird. But they loved people who said like, hey, I have this new way of following Jesus. Like, hey, I have this new wisdom that you don't have because you're not on my level, but like follow me long enough and you might get there. And so company, we fall victim to that all the time. We hear people claim that they like know something more than we do or that they've reached some new level of Christianity that we haven't yet. And they're lying. It's not a thing. God doesn't just treat people with more favor than others. He gives the same thing to all of us, and that's what Paul is going to go after. There's no spirit, room for spiritual elitism in the kingdom of God. So all these people claiming they had this extra stuff or hidden things, he's about to drop kick that, kinking, that thinking right in the face. Kinking, that's a weird word. <laughs> Can't tell if that's like inappropriate or mechanical engineer-like. I don't know. So warning though, okay? So this gets a little heady, right? But you're in college, and I think you can follow along with me. And I'm literally going to go like one or two verses at a time. And you should never pass over the parts of the Bible that confuse you, because those are probably actually the richest like, and best things to sit down, slow down, and try to understand. So please don't tune out, because you're not tuning out to me. You're tuning out 
God, and that's just a silly idea, especially at church. So let's, let's start with verse 6. We're going to parse it all out and figure it out together. So Paul says this. He goes, okay, we do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or this world or the rulers of this age or this world who are coming to nothing. Okay, what he's saying is, look, living out the way of Jesus, it's not for simple people. It's not that it's just a simple kind of foolish religion. What he's saying, though, it's, it's not something that only certain Christians can understand or it's for super disciples. No, he's saying, look, it's for everybody. It says, the wisdom of the Christian faith is spoken among the mature. Well, first we have to ask, what is the wisdom? The wisdom is the way of Jesus. Because Jesus, he came absolutely with a life, death, and then resurrection, but he was also proclaiming a new way of life, the kingdom. So the wisdom of God is the way of Jesus to live life in his kingdom. And who then are the mature? Who can understand it? Well, again, he's actually attacking Greek philosophy because back in Greek philosophy, the mature were people who, uh, like a, a teacher would define like a super disciple or someone who really got it, and then there were infants. So people who just didn't really get it, but they were just starting. And what Paul is actually saying is, I don't have those categories. Look, there is just someone who is mature or who is not. He's saying, look, it doesn't work that way with Christianity. Here's who the mature are. The mature in the way of Jesus are the people whose hope is in the kingdom he proclaimed, and then their lives reflect that. So your maturity is defined by where you put your hope when it comes to the kingdom of God. Your maturity is defined by where you put your hope. So he's saying if your hope is in Jesus and in the gospel, then I'm calling you mature in this moment. Maturity is determined by the object of your hope. And then it's reflected in the kingdom that you live for. In the kingdom of God, the mature are those who live for the hope promised in the gospel, which then means, though, that the immature is anyone who lives by the wisdom of this age or this world. So they live like Jesus is not coming back. They live like the life they have right in front of them is the only life they will ever live. And he kind of unpacks that again. Look at verses 6 and 7 together. So he says, uh, it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. Okay, remember, it's not hidden anymore. It's the gospel. It's the way of Jesus. It's living life in his kingdom. And it's not understood by anybody who doesn't have faith in Jesus. And he keeps using this language like this age. Okay, so let's define that. So this age is anything this side of eternity. Anything this side of eternity because there is an age to come. So a Christian believes that while Jesus came as a kind and poor carpenter, he's going to return a triumphant and ruling king. So the age now, things are still kind of a hot mess, right? Things aren't quite how they should be. And the age to come is when King Jesus comes back to right all of the wrong things and to recreate his creation. But the resurrection did something kind of interesting. It actually grabbed 
the age to come, and it slammed it into this age right now. Okay, so that means that like Jesus rescuing people, an ability to live the way of the kingdom, it's not just something we're hoping for then, it's actually a way we can start living right now. It's actually a way that we can start living right now because it slammed, the resurrection slammed the age to come into this one right now. You might hear it as like an already but not yet kind of a thing. So that's the world we live in, where the truth of Jesus and his spirit are moving and making people new, but it's not yet all that it could be. And the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age, all they understand and believe has no concept of King Jesus coming back to judge the world and recreate everything. I mean, think about it. The, the things that this world values, the way that power works, the way that people are treated, the hope like the greatest hope you have in America is a white picket fence, a few kids in a vacation home. The way of Jesus says, oh, this is nothing compared to the hope I have for you. This is like a blink compared to the eternity of joy that's headed your way. And the way that people rule, countries, families, the way we treat women, people of different colors than ours, they're not operating like a king is coming back. They're not living as though a good and perfect God is coming back to recreate and get rid of, push out of his city, all of the people who refuse to live under his rule and authority. And Paul is saying, look, a mature person is someone who puts their hope in a life to come. And it needs to affect our life now. Because believe it or not, he's put his spirit in all of us and he's saying, actually, I'm gonna use you to bring my kingdom into the broken world that you live in. So you don't just like sit and, and twiddle your thumbs waiting for Jesus to rip the sky open and take you home. He's actually said, no, you need to go into the world and begin to show people around you the way my kingdom works. And our, it's funny, our world actually, they want to live the way of Jesus. Like if you think about it, we're really into social justice we are really trying to bring equality and peace into the world, but we actually just don't want the king. We want, we want Jesus' kingdom. Our world wants his kingdom, but they don't want him to be king. We want, we want all the nice things that he has. We want all the good ideas that he had to bring to us, but we don't want him to tell us what to do. And that's just not how it works. So does your life fall in line with the hope of the age to come? I mean, it'll affect the, the approval you seek from the people around you. It'll affect what you think success is. It'll affect the way you view your sexuality. It'll affect the way you spend your money. It'll change the way you view your marriage, how you parent someday, the school you go to, the job you have. If you have a hope and a life to come, it will dramatically change the life you're living in the here and now. Which kingdom has rule over your life? What do your heart's desires say about the life that you place your hope in? Paul saw too many Corinthians living for the world, for the culture, and he wanted them to realize that's not the life that's going to last. The one to come is the one to live for. And he like really wanted to prove this, so he put verses eight and nine in there. Like He wanted to remind them how foolish the way of the world was because they're the ones who killed Jesus. 
He's like, they were so foolish, they killed God himself. Look at verse 8. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. And this is talking about heaven, but it's also talking about the gospel. Just God in flesh dying for his people. And who were the rulers of this age? Who crucified Jesus? Well, it was the Jews and the Romans, right? The Jewish officials and the Roman government. They were the highest forms of both religion and government at the time of Christ. Like the most powerful, the most intelligent, the most revered and respected. It was the Jewish officials and their religion and then the Roman Empire. And on this side of the New Testament, we always look at them as the bad guys who killed Jesus. But most people, so if you weren't a Jew, you actually would have loved Rome. You actually would have thought they were incredibly powerful and smart, and you would have even worshipped the nation of Rome as a god in and of itself. And if you were within the Jewish circle, it wasn't until Jesus showed up that Pharisees started taking a lot of crap. Up until that point, you would have listened to every word one of those Jewish priests had to say. You would have revered and respected them, and many still did even after Jesus incited with the Pharisees and not with Jesus himself. And so Paul's trying to make this point. He's like, look, if the height of the world's power, intelligence, respect, and reverence would kill God, how on earth could you trust the wisdom and ways of the world in the here and now? If they're willing to kill Jesus and not see what God could see, why would you trust them? But if they couldn't see it, how do we? If those really smart and powerful people couldn't see it, how do we? Verse 10. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Okay, what on earth is the Spirit? Right? Who is that? What is that? First thing you need to know is we don't get it or like achieve a level to receive it. He just gives it away. And what does he give? It's the Holy Spirit. Okay. It's the third member of the Trinity. So that's a fancy word for God. So welcome to 2,000 years of church history. So the Trinity is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see God reveal himself in three distinct ways in the Bible. God the Father... God the Son, that's Jesus, and then God the Holy Spirit. So when he's talking about the Spirit, he's saying God the Holy Spirit is what we receive. And we can even see it in the text because it says that this gospel itself was prepared by God, given to us in Jesus, and then revealed to us by the Spirit. And I don't know what church background you come from. I don't know what ideas you have about the Spirit, I came from a very Pentecostal background. So like, she came in a Honda, left in a Mazda, like right in the middle of church, speaking in tongues, like confusion. And so I wanna help you like set some things right. It was supposed to be a joke, all of you are like, what did he say? Something about a car dealership? Sorry, bad Pentecostal joke. So we actually like have done a ton of damage to the Holy Spirit, and I think it's actually caused a lot of drought in your Christian life, right? I think because we've misunderstood or not talked enough about the Holy Spirit, it's why a lot of you feel like you're just aimless living your Christian life hoping you're doing it right. That was never, ever the way God intended it to be. Ever. 
Jesus called him the helper. God himself living inside of you. He is supposed to help you see and understand all that God has for you. That's exactly what he's saying here. And how do we receive it? Well, we get it when we put our faith in Jesus. You do not have to get baptized in the Holy Spirit. You don't need to pray extra prayers and achieve some sort of level. The moment you say, Jesus' death, resurrection, it's for me, you get the Holy Spirit. When you believe in Jesus, he fills you with the helper. And what does the Spirit do? It says it helps us understand the ways and thoughts of God himself. Look at verse 11. It says, for who knows a person's thoughts except his spirit within him? He's basically saying, like, nobody knows what you're thinking except you. Like, do you guys know what I'm thinking right now? No, I was thinking, how did the people who made the first clock know what time it was? That's what I was thinking, right? You didn't know that because you're not in my mind. You had no idea that I was thinking that, right? Doesn't that blow your mind a little bit? Like, how did they know? Sorry, totally just, we can talk about that later, but... He's basically saying, like, you can't know what someone else is thinking unless you could somehow know what they were thinking. And no one knew what God was doing by showing up as a baby and then dying on a cross as a criminal because they could not understand what he was thinking until now. He has given us the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that? Like, God himself dwells within you so that you do not have to aimlessly try to figure out your Christian life, so that you don't have to wonder, am I doing the right things, or am I really gonna be able to defeat sin? The answer is yes, because God himself, the very spirit that can search all of the mystery and depth of God, dwells inside of you. He's not holding out on you. He's not holding back from you. It's not that some of you got a little more of the Spirit than others. No, the same level, the same amount, the same reality is true for every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. He is a guide to you in the moment-by-moment stuff of life. He's there to help you learn how to live the mature way of the Christian faith. And then he begins to make some comparisons and contrasts here in verse 12. He says, Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but by those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. Okay, what has been freely given? What is he talking about? Well, he first means the spirit, his very spirit. He freely gives And with it, all the knowledge and wisdom and understanding that you could need, not just to understand the Bible, it's at least that, yes, understand the Bible, but it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. It's actually the ability to live out a way of Jesus, to say no to sin, to speak that exact word that that person needed from you because it was never in your mind, but he dropped it in there to help them. It is not limited to helping you understand the Bible. It's actually so that you can live your whole life the way the mature person would. It says right here in verse 15, the spiritual person can evaluate everything. He basically means that the Holy Spirit can be the filter that you see the the whole world, that you can evaluate everything right in front of you, that you don't have to wonder what God would want you to do 
that you can actually know what he wants you to do. And it's not like a database that you just like plug into like the matrix. And it's not like a magic trick where you just snap your fingers and suddenly the answer comes. It's actually a listening. And this is where I think a lot of us get in trouble because the Holy Spirit, I said, is there to help you live out your WWJD bracelets, right? You wanna know what Jesus would do? You need to start listening to the Holy Spirit. He teaches us to listen for God but the problem is so few of us slow down long enough to actually hear what he has to say. So few of us actually even ask him what we should do because your default, Christian or not, will probably be just to do what the world would do. Your default, because we're so saturated by this culture, is actually just to do whatever the world would tell you to do, not what the Spirit would have you do. And the problem or problems you might be having are probably because you don't slow down long enough to listen. We have to slow down and begin to listen to him. Or some of you don't like what he has to say, so you've just turned the volume down. You don't like that he has something to say about who you sleep with or where you're gonna live or how you spend your money or what things you let slide. So you've turned him down. Neither of those things are healthy because we're supposed to have a dependence on the Holy Spirit. And so we need to remove this whole drive-through culture where we try to do things as fast as possible and figure all of it out and learn to slow down long enough to let God speak. Because without the Holy Spirit, it's like trying to drive with no headlights on. It's just not going to end well. We should not be living like the rest of the world. And the Holy Spirit is what empowers us to live differently, to live the way of Jesus because we can understand the way of Jesus unlike those who can't. That's what it means in verse 14. But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. That means there are two people in this room, those with the Spirit and those without. And there are so many people who I know, maybe even for the purest motives, you want evidence, you want logic you can understand, you want something tangible and concrete to compel you into faith in Jesus. And I'm sorry, but if that's what you're looking for, you'll be looking your whole life. You are not going to understand or have faith in Jesus just because the argument was compelling or the evidence was finally in front of you. You only get the spirit through the humility of admitting and putting your faith in the cross. You have to start at the cross to receive the Spirit. It's why so many people can hear the most creative or compelling gospel presentation. Maybe you've been there. You bring that friend who you know doesn't know Jesus to church, and you're like, I can't believe what Reed is saying right now. This is exactly what they need to hear, and they fall asleep, right? Or they just walk out completely unchanged. It's because it doesn't matter how good it's spoken. If the Spirit doesn't move, it's not going to happen. If the Spirit doesn't reveal it to you, it will never make sense at all. And so if you're trying to figure out, like, is this Jesus thing real? My plea to you would not be to pray, God, make it make sense. Instead, it would be to ask, God, would your Spirit reveal it to me? And even that's how we can pray for other people. And again, it removes us or any compelling argument from being the key to them knowing Jesus, and instead, it always puts the power in God's hands. 
It puts all of it into God's corner of the room. It makes him the motivator, the instigator, and the reason anyone has faith because you cannot reason your way to salvation. You can't religion your way to Jesus, and you cannot get enough power or influence for him to show you all the things he wants to show you. It is only if the Spirit reveals it to you. And what this should do is make us incredibly humble that God would look at each one of us and say, I am not just going to send you out into the world hoping you figure out how to do this thing for me, but I'm actually going to dwell within you and be with you every step of the way. And so I'm grateful that you stayed with me this whole time because in a minute I'm going to pray. But I hope what you see here is that salvation, it's understanding, it's wisdom, all that we would want and need to know is found in the power of God and his revealing Holy Spirit. And for those of you who are like me, let's learn to slow down long enough to actually let him tell us how to live the kingdom life he's meant for us. You actually weren't supposed to be so frustrated with your Christian life. We just don't actually let him dictate how that goes. So let's pray. Jesus, this passage is rich and um, way smarter than me, and I'm just grateful that when I read it, I realize that my faith is in the truth that you became a man, and not just a man, but a baby, a dependent and helpless little baby. And you lived a life that I could never live. And then you gave it to me by dying on a cross to get rid of the sin that so made me a slave. And then in rising from the dead, you promised that there would be a day coming where sin would be no more, that all the ways of this world would actually be brought to nothing and instead goodness and peace and hope would be remade on your earth, never again to be affected by evil. And I confess that I make so many decisions like the world would make decisions, I don't stop long enough to hear the Spirit, and I want to change. But even that can only happen if your Spirit moves in me. And so now would we just worship you, grateful for your Spirit, and people who live for the kingdom to come. In Jesus' name, amen.